Hello and welcome to this, the 12th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week, we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We have promised that we'll never, ever charge for these podcasts. But we are asking for you to go and put your money where your mouth is and to support Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And what's the simplest way for you to go and do that? Of course, as ever, it's to go and buy yourself some tickets to a theatre show near you. Buy them as a gift for a friend, buy them for yourself as a special treat, buy them to bring someone out on a hot date and impress them. I don't care why you do it, just make sure you go and do it. And if you feel that tickets are out of your reach this week or this month, there's always ways you can support on some of the crowdsourcing websites like Fundit.ie or Indiegogo or any of those, search out a theatre production that's happening and see if you can throw it some support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for your donation. And of course, there are ways you can support without even putting your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast. The more you get the word out about the podcast, the more we can get the word out about Irish theatre and keep that wonderful circle of appreciation going. Go and tell people in person over a cup of coffee or over a pint or, hey, maybe even on a date at the theatre. Of course, you can share the link as a Facebook post or you can retweet the link on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, which is a huge help for us in terms of chart positioning. Uh, But for those of you who aren't using iTunes, these podcasts are also streamable and available for direct download at riseproductions.ie. Do go back and listen to all the other episodes, the 52 episodes in Series 1 and the 12 episodes ready to rock from Season 2. If you can, while you're listening back, go and leave us a review on iTunes, that's a huge help, or simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. It'll literally take you a second. It's a one-click deal. You can, of course, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers as we put the finishing touches to the tour of The Good Father, which will be coming up in March. It's really fantastic for us because having played to 10 venues all around the country just before Christmas, to be coming back now and having over 10 venues this time around is really quite something. The idea that we're going to be hitting you know more than 20 venues in the space of I guess six months is really quite something. But I'm delighted. I'm delighted for Christian because I think it's an incredible play and I'm delighted that people have warmed to the production so much that they want us to get it back out on the road again and to get it back out so quickly. It's been a bit of a scramble to get it all together but hey I like a challenge. I'm glad to be doing it. So it's it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. We're hitting all four provinces. We're crossing the border again. It's going to be really nice and I will be absolutely over the moon to be taking it back out on the road and also this week at Rise Towers interestingly we have just signed up for what will be the second show later on this year which I'm not allowed to say anything about just yet um, but it will be a world premiere we're going back to new writing for the first time since uh, I guess at the Ford and the Christie show um, and it will have a Dublin run and it will then be followed by another nationwide tour so we've got a busy year ahead it's really exciting I'm really revved up for it it's busy it's going to be hectic 
but I think it'll be really worth it. We are getting back to our roots with new writing uh, and I'm really, really excited about that. So it's exciting times and we will, of course, be revealing all in due course and trying to flog as many tickets to you as possible. And so, look, that brings us to our guest this week, who is none other than the fantastic Emer Murphy, who, apart from being really an unsung hero at the Abbey, is also completely unique in Irish theatre in that she is the only full-time permanent prop maker in the business. Now, as you'll hear, me and Emer go back over 20 years at this stage, so it was an absolute treat for me to sit down and have this conversation. It's a really interesting one, and I think you're going to love it. So, look, let's get straight to it. Here it is, the brilliant Emer Murphy. The wonderful Emer Murphy on the podcast at long last. Isn't this a happy thing? I am delighted to have you here. Um, let us do, as we do every week, go back to the very beginning. Because the very beginning for you doesn't even happen on this continent, does it? No. You mean when I was born? Yes, I do. Let's go right away. Let's, I mean, we're going chronological here. No. Uh, yeah, take me back. Um, okay. Uh, my parents are both from Tipperary. And my father uh, emigrated when he was 15 or 16. And he went to stay with his aunt. He was given to the maiden aunt, which was a normal thing back then. He was given to the maiden aunt to raise, and she lived in Canada, in in um, in Buffalo, and they had a house in Toronto at one point. She was very wealthy. Okay. And um, so he went there. Somehow we never quite untangled this. I don't really know how, but he ended up something about he he wanted to come down. He wanted to be in America. He didn't want to sit, settle in Canada. He wanted okay. to be in the states, and he wanted to go to New York. He just wanted to go to New York, but there was a draft on at the time, and he knew if he set foot in this in across the border that he would be drafted. So he avoided it for as long as he could anyway, then he went and subsequently, he thought he had missed the window because he thought he was too old. And as soon as he set foot in they, and was registered in the United States, he was drafted. And, really? Yes. And was uh, stationed in Fort Kobe in, uh, in Panama. In Panama? In Panama, Cuba. Cuba? Um, one that's, of those. That's remarkable. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so he, uh, in the meantime, every time he was on at home, on leaving whatever to see his mom because his his mother was widowed and okay. his uh, only brother was was married really young and wasn't there so she was on her own from a very um, young age really and he would come home a lot and every time he was home he would go to the dances he was an amazing boy go home to Tipperary yes yeah really? on leave yeah because they did good leave wow and he would meet my mother at the dances and would always mark her dance card and insist on dancing with her. Because he must have been the most exotic, wonderful thing he in the world. Was, yes, he had an American accent and everything. Oh, man. So um, she tells this brilliant story. She told us all this when we were teenagers. The two of them, actually, I don't remember how it came up. But my mother worked in an insurance company in Nina, in County Tipperary. And one Friday evening, they were walking. Oh, she, he had been home and he had said, you're going to marry me, basically. Right. And my mother said, sure. And then he went back to the States. At that point, he was leaving the army and was going down to the plan. Was he was going to finally move to New York. And um, and she was walking up up towards Summer Hill, which is where her parents were from, up Nina, with a group of her girls from the office, all talking about where they were going, what dances they were going to that evening or whatever. This is in 1962 or three. And um, she had sent my father a Dear John letter. She had, had thought better of it and gone, I know here, because she had loads of boyfriends. <laughs> there was loads of fellas around. And she had gone... I know I don't want to live in America. I don't want to go away. She was still living with her her mother. Yeah. And um, and so six months went by. Anyway, this evening she's walking up Nina. This car, big black car with Dublin license plates, pulls up. Okay. 
door opens just as she gets they come alongside it and this American voice goes get in the car and it was my father and he <laughs> she got into the car it sounds pretty dramatic she got into the car and he drove her off outside into it like a lookout spot so into a, into a spot overlooking the Shannon and he said no 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 you're coming and you're marrying me and she went okay and then that time she said okay and then she went to the states and they got married in in 1964 that's spectacularly so. <laughs> awesome <laughs> And um, she only knew him five minutes, but then, you know. Ah, still, that's brilliant. I love it. She knew his um, family. She knew where he was from. Exactly. She knew his people. Yes, she knew um, his people. So, then you arrive over there in the States. And yeah. how long did you grow up in the States for then? Um, I was born in New York in 1970. They were they were married a long time before there were children. And um, they had been told they weren't going to have children because my mother was very old when okay. she got married. She was 32. Ancient, um, clearly. Yes, clearly. And, uh, and so... So five years went by, they had no children. They were actually starting to adopt and my mother fell pregnant with me. So she was wow. 37 when I was born. And, um, and then as happens, my, my brother had exactly the same story when they wanted to have children. My brother was living in the States. The call of home gets much stronger. Yeah. They want to go home. They want to be where the family are. So, so, but it took them a while to organize it. So by the time they packed up sticks and came home, it was 1975 and they had Three or more miracles. <laughs> and a tiny baby miracle was my brother, who was only a couple of months old when they actually flew. Wow. So my poor mother took a transatlantic flight on her own because dad went ahead with a five-year-old, which is me, just gone five. My sister, who was three and a bit. My younger sister, who was two. And my brother, who was four months old. Easy peasy, just walking the Every time I got in a plane, I think of my mother. Unbelievable. Doing that flight with all those children on her own. Every time. But yeah. That's really quite something. Yeah. So what was the transition like from the bright lights of New York back to <laughs> sunny old Ireland? Well, we weren't in New York. We were, um, I had been born in New York City. And then at that time, there was a big uh, building boom on the Virgin Islands, which the American oh, yeah. Virgin Islands, West Indies. And um, there was a lot of contractors getting work out there. My father had become, had studied and become a contractor at that point. And they went out to St. Thomas with a whole lot of other people from the mainland and they built hotels, they built Sheratons and Hiltons and, sure. and offices and infrastructure because all the Americans wanted to go there on holiday, but they didn't want to put up with what the natives put up with this <laughs> in terms of facilities and stuff. So, so they all went out and did that and uh, they came back to the mainland once that building thing was, they settled in Pennsylvania. My brother was born there. So I had two sisters born on St. Thomas Virgin Islands. My brother was born in Pennsylvania and then my, my baby sister was about to turn 40 this weekend <laughs> was born in Limerick so, wow yes. so but she, but so so we when we all came home we came we they went to tip they, they wanted to settle where their parents both were and um and my first memories of leaving what was a modern apartment in Pennsylvania outside of Wilkes-Barre um was like it was fairly new I think it was probably only three or four years old when we moved in and it had it was an apartment on the second floor I think of the complex and it had a balcony and it had a golf course we looked out onto a golf course nice <laughs> there was wood and there was a golf course and there was a swimming pool in the complex it was a really yeah it was a nice complex and um but it was I remember it being everything was kind of chrome and formica and shiny and yellow the kitchen had definitely got like sunflower yellow colors in it and we had this big old sliding doors that opened out into the balcony and so it was all about sun and bright and when we moved home first we went to stay with my mother's parents so we were living in my grandparents house in Nina 
which was it just a, a townhouse in Summer Hill in Nina, and it everything to me was so strange. It was like it was like alien. It was dark and it was not warm. <laughs> Central heating and um, it was not warm and and where it was warm was very locally centered around fires. We yes. never we never had an open fire before. The smells of like fires in every single room and the outhouse this horrific thing that was the outhouse and then the, the horrific thing that was the pose in the yes bedrooms. of course because um, my grandparents were elderly at that point so there were pose in bedrooms I still remember the smell of them and going when you're playing hide and seek with your brothers and sisters and somebody hides under the bed very oh, careful yeah, yeah we've uh, been there <laughs> <laughs> so it was really alien and I still think I still think it had a really profound effect on me because the difference that everything was I didn't understand what it was but the age of the things mm. and the difference in the materiality the difference in sort of bright shiny plastic chrome american world that i had come from and then this sort of dark cold smelly quite yeah. frankly <laughs> strange lace curtains yeah. and tiny windows and crooked stairs and and the little the, the uh, downstairs in, in my grandmother's house there was um, one of those cupboards under the stairs and the things you'd find in there yes I remember my grandmother giving me, and I was very young, um, actually it was probably one of our visits home, my grandmother gave me this tea caddy full of buttons, and I'm pulling them all out, I must have been telling you, you would never give in a small child these things, <laughs> but they all looked like sweets. Of course. I was fascinated with them, there was one millefiori one, um, millefiori roses and black black glass bead with my tiny little pink millefiori roses, and I remember staring at that for hours, I still can see it in my head. Wow. So I think I just got this... This is the very beginning. I think I just got this kind of um, affinity for an interest in in all things and in in what I suppose it's about. It's it's redesigned history, but I didn't learn that until later. But it's what was different, but the exact same time frame. So America, nineteen seventy five, in that apartment in nineteen seventy five, versus what was current even. Yeah, worlds it, apart. Like people still find it hard to believe that rural Ireland was so strange in the mid-70s. Yeah, as recent as that. As recent as that. Because when we were growing up, my mother, she would go crazy what was not available in supermarkets. She was on cucumber. When she got the first <laughs> cucumber, I remember her bringing it home in triumph. And we would eat it and cut up in chunks. And the other mm. kids would go, what is that? Because mm. they'd never seen it before. Wow. Uh, it seems mad. And they'd never had, no one had had spaghetti bolognese until my mother made it. No one had had meatballs until my mother made them. So... Yeah, it, it seems crazy. 1975 in rural Tipperary. It's absolutely glorious, but it seems already just even in the way you talk about those things, that your awareness of objects around mm. you and the settings of that seems to have been something that you know. If we're going to go down the nature versus nurture thing, yeah. it seems like it was there. So when does the spark of heading towards a career in theatre begin for you then? <laughs> uh, yeah, that kind of sparked when I couldn't get into film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I, my other thing was, was photography and I bought a camera with my confirmation money Excellent and I choice. used to take photographs of everything and my father had shown me how to use his, his camera, his good camera and um, so I bought my own but it was only a, it was a Instamatic but I love taking pictures so I, the only thing I could ever think in terms of a career, I had no idea and in, especially in the late 80s in Tipperary again, I remember going into the guidance counsellor and he, he just said bookkeeping. Um, of course, secretarial, nursing, yeah, they're all really good. genuinely. That was he couldn't think beyond that. Yeah, and um, and so I applied for 
a couple of courses I applied for travel and tourism, but I applied for communications as it was then in the College of Commerce Rathmines, which was a film broadcasting course. Okay. And um, bizarrely got it, but it was it, it it was very high points at the time. But also you had to do an interview to get in because the club courses classes were so small. Yeah. And so for some reason I got in, and uh, yes, and then went through that, got my primary degree in film and came out thinking I was going to walk onto film sets and discovered how difficult that was fairly quickly. At that stage, was your intention to be the next Steven Spielberg? <laughs> or or was it already in kind of design elements there you were looking? Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a camera. I wanted to be a clapper loader. Focus puller actually was my ultimate goal. I didn't even want to be a DOP. I wanted to be... A, I was very good at it. Really? <laughs> Focus pulling, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but I wanted to be involved in the camera department and I was told that it was going to be very difficult. It was difficult anyway, but I was told that it was going to be ten times more difficult because I was a woman. Yeah. And um, and of course you go, not me. Not me. I shall change no, the world. I, yeah. <laughs> no, I no. I was beaten down by it. But three years it took me to kind of give up on it. And I, and even at that I didn't give up on it. I yeah. I started working in theatre and I kept thinking I would get back to it and I never yeah. did. But I remember, like I remember going up. I didn't get that many opportunities, but I remember we were we were living in a in a flat in North Mines, and. Uh, you would save up your 10p's to go down into the, the payphone in the hall. Of course. And you would, the, the few contacts that I had, you would call them and you'd psych, I remember psyching myself up to do it and there was days when I just couldn't bear it because I knew they were going to say no and you had to call them and say, anything on for me? Yeah. And they would say, no. And then, <laughs> you know, then you'd kind of, some eventually someone would take pity on you and a couple of people said things to me like, um, Look, basically, you're number 11 on a list, so I have to go through 10. My 10 preferred people have to not be available at the same time before I call you. Okay. And that was my first big kind of, okay. Okay. (laughs) Trying to be strong and confident and brave and just going. I remember climbing back up the stairs that we were in the very top in the attic, climbing back up the stairs to my flat on my own, going, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And then eventually, because I was on the door for so long, I am... I had to I do a, fo- a CE scheme there. Yeah. and there was a couple of things that, that I thought might be interesting one was a camera operator video camera operator for See Here the, the deaf oh, yeah. and the other one was a lighting assistant for a small theatre company and I applied for both and I got the interview for the theatre company first when I did the interview and they literally called me I had I was coming in my door and the <laughs> and phone the phone in the ringing. hall was ringing Brilliant. and it was John O'Brien of Eovaldonok saying uh, you got the job <laughs> when can you start so that was that was when I started, and that's when I first met you. Yes, indeed, when back in the day. So is it tr- is it true? Yeah, I was indeed just a child. Mm. Is it true to say that that production of Midsummer Night's Dream, where I so wonderfully played the wall, you played the wall that you created that wall. I did. From I made scratch? that wall for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I, um, the first thing I did with Eovald Onik was Tom O'Brien's Monday Night in a Country Town, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the Baltar Flynn was in it, uh, uh, playing a straight, playing being a serious actress at that point, um, and uh, it was it was kind of a, a typical nineteen fifties um, kind of kitchen setup. There was two different locations, I think, but it was to find the things for that. But I mean, I was clueless. I they said to me on my on the second day, John O'Brien said to me, "Listen, we had to put that out in because the." The scheme runs in such a way that they make you ask for certain things, but we don't need a lighting assistant. Okay. And I went, right. And he says, we need a stage manager. Would you do that? And I said, I have no idea what that is. And he went, you'll be grand. 
as only John O'Brien could. I, fine, we'll, we'll train you up. And I got zero <laughs> further training or any other explanation. Just sit down there and take notes. That sounds about right. And there was three weeks rehearsal and halfway through the rehearsal, someone, so people were saying to me, how are you getting on? How are the props coming along? And I was like, I... Fine, I think. I had no idea what, what they were talking about. And eventually yeah. it was Marie Tierney, who was the production manager, and she pulled me aside. And um, she said, props. And I said, yeah, they keep asking me about props. <laughs> she said, has nobody explained this to you? And I said, no. So, yeah. So, my very first ever job, literally, I had no idea what I was doing. Tom O'Brien said, don't worry, my friend Stephen in the Abbey will sort you out. And wow. I got introduced to Stephen Malloy in the Abbey Theatre gravy train from then on for the rest of my career wow. that's literally how i find it tom used to play football with Stephen. that's and, uh, incredible on my very first ever job i was bought into the abbey and let loose in the abbey stores and could take whatever i wanted and again at the risk of making this sound like some kind of hollywood story was there an instantaneous <laughs> moment of light bulb of oh wow this is exciting i could get into this you can say no to that. <laughs> no, there were, well, there, were, there was a couple of things that were kind of big indicators in that. One was, um, I can't remember, I remember asking Stephen a question about something and whatever way I answered, he kind of raised his eyebrow and looked at me in, a, in an approving kind of way and I okay. thought, all right. I kind of had an affinity for it and I don't know why. I mean, I, yeah. it was uh, some somehow innately understood what they were looking for, what would be right and what wouldn't. And, um, and I remember the other thing was Marie Tierney because... There was a gun in it. There was a rifle, and um, there Andrew Bennett actually, Andrew Bennett, my very, also in my very first ever play, um, had to load it with cartridges. Right. And they said we'll get a, car- a box, a cartridge box, and it'll be in this cupboard, and we can go and get the gun. And he'll take these out very deliberately and load them. And he goes off. And you think he's going to kill someone else, but he actually kills himself in the end. Spoiler. Sorry. Twenty years off. <laughs> Twenty years. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> But so we needed a box for cartridges and my father had 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 shotguns and so I knew what a cartridge box was like, but I was going to cartridge box in 1950s. So so I just made this thing out of card. Okay. I found card, but but see that, you know, you know one on the radio. Yes. But that sort of card, that pressed card, not, not corrugated card, yeah. there was a piece knocking around somewhere and I went, that would work. And I made the box for it, just the, 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 that was the right shape and size for a cartridge box. And I put it in the rehearsal room and that was the end. When Marie Tierney saw it, she kind of fell on it like it was, like it was made of gold. Went, right. Where did you get this? And I went, I made it. And this little light went on in Marie's eyes and she went, really? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I couldn't believe like, that way everybody was. And I, now I understand it. Yeah. Because now, now dealing with ASMs and people who have no ken for it and are going, would that not do? It's a plastic thing. And now I know why. Yeah. But, but I remember her saying... She had to, I said, okay, why is that so interesting? Why? And she said, well, because not only did you know the right shape and size it should be, but you chose the very correct cardboard and you copied the way an old one would have been made because of just something that I'd seen or something. Yeah. And she said, you knew that you wouldn't be able to reproduce period packaging, so you just left it blank and it doesn't draw attention to itself. Yeah. And like, I go into the Lear now and I do a bit of teaching. And that's always my, my final word to them is if it's not wrong, it's right. If, it, if you can't make the yes. exact right thing, just make something that's really bland, painted brown, yeah. no, that, that fades into the background that no one sees. Because if it's not wrong, it's right. But if it's wrong, it's really wrong. <laughs> so, so don't try and be over clever with things. Sometimes it's the easiest thing to do is just to make something that looks bland. There's a quote from the world of pro wrestling, which <laughs> is in a shock move, I'm going to bring is that there up. Indeed? Uh, which goes along the lines of, our job is not to convince them that it's real, it's to help them forget that it's not. 
And I think it's probably along those that's lines. That's exact. Then. That's very, yes. That's See, pro wrestling does work. Pro See, wrestling. got to listen to it. Um, so, <laughs> how long did you spend around the world of kind of independent theatre at that time? Or was the move to the Abbey relatively quick after that? Um, who knew? Uh, I remember John, actually, again, John, the great John O'Brien, um, saying to me, I made something else for the next play that we, that we did before Midsummer's even. And he, he pointed at it and said, See that? Um, it was something, whatever. And I said, yeah. And he goes, that skill will have you in the Abbey before it ever has me in there. And I thought it was hysterical. I really thought it was the funniest thing ever. And, um, but then my, f- <laughs> this, is, this will go off into a mad big tangent, but my first big show, so my first big shows were the Gaty Pantomimes. So right. I, and, and the Gaty Pantomime, as an ASM, you have to make everything. Okay. And, and I just happened to be good at it. So, but you would, you would be in rehearsal all day long. And we would be in the Archbishop Burn Hall, and there was there was a space under the stair under the stage. Yes. With no light or anything. There was like a little light bulb in the ceiling, but there was no ventilation. And I'd be down there with glue and spray paint. Like, like Harry Potter under the stairs. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Amazing. basically. But but that's that was luxury. <laughs> I'm telling you, because I I bumped into some of the ASMs this year's Panto, and they had nowhere to make anything. Okay. I mean, they were not allowed to make in the space that they had now, because I think Archbishop Byrne is now gone. Okay. So wherever they were was somewhere nice, bright, and shiny, and clean, and they couldn't bring any paint or glue into the building. So God love them. But I mean, even with that horrible space under the stairs, I was bringing things home and making them at night, all night. And you'd be doing that, and then coming in the following day and doing rehearsal all day, and then going home and making things in your own house. I have a long history of pissing off flatmates <laughs> behind me because the place would be just yep. a tip covered in things and you're so exhausted and you're so stressed out and you have so many deadlines and your back just going when is that thing going to be ready and all your focus is on getting them the things finished and getting them in and really on top of working a full-time job yeah. through the day each day yes. as well yeah. as you're there in the rehearsal room yes so so there was so there was that there was panto and then my my second big show ever which you could do an entire podcast on actually I challenge you to do an entire podcast. Round up and find the original cast of JFK musical drama and do a podcast on it because I was on that show and I swear people think I made it up. Peter Volbrecht was on it. He correct, he certainly was. And I'm trying to piece together who else was on that show. I don't I know my parents saw it, but I don't Did think I ever saw it. I think they came back to me and said, Maybe you don't need to see this one. That we should have written everything down because that was a story and a half. And actually anyone out there wants to write a play I can give you the play about the play because it I mean you think the producers it it, it was JFK the musical basically yes JFK musical drama amazing and there's so many legends about it and one of them is that one of the morning radio shows they thought it was hysterical and they they ran this this spoof like we've got another exclusive extract from JFK a musical drama and there was this guy on a guitar and he would sing this is exclusive now nobody else has this and then the one that everybody remembers is he sang, he's dead, he's dead, they've shot him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear there are people who still think that was actually in, in the, the show. Thing, you know? Yes. Wow. That was a show and a half. That was a really, really eye-opener. But the designer that I worked with on that show was the great Jovanek. Ah, okay. And again, he looked at me and raised an eyebrow and went, Ooh, you're handy, you seem to know what you're doing. I had done research, I remember doing tons of research into placards we had to make for the selection scene. Okay. And to what the original JFK for President placards would look like. And I drew him up some stuff and I bought him things and he just looked at me like, mm-hmm. So, so there, so there was Joe, so there was people that I, that said, you know, two production managers going, going forward, ah, oh, there's a girl I worked with, she's handy, get yeah. her. 
So, but still I didn't, I mean, I worked with, my biggest break actually was working with Barabbas. I got in with Barabbas, again, through Marie Journey, yeah. really early on. And if ever there's a, a learning curve for learning to make things, it's with Barabbas, the company, with the with the clown theatre, where everything is is clown size, clown proportion. Right. It clown logic. They, you know, things that you that looked like one thing, but then they would eat them. Toenails, <laughs> for instance. I remember making nice. edible toenails for a show. Um, That's niche. <laughs> it's pretty niche. That's and puppets. I got to make puppets with them. And um, and I was really interested in puppets at one point, actually. And my my sister was more into making puppets. My sister made puppets from the time she was six years old. Right. She would cut up my mother's tights and make puppets. Okay. Um, and I kind of did a bit, but not as much as her. But the two of us collaborated in later years because she went to do she went to NCAD and did art, to art college, and I dragged her into things. So she made puppets for the Gaiety pantomimes, and she made puppets for Barabbas, and I operated them. So there was a little bit of puppetry that went on in those days as well. Wow! And at one point, I thought maybe that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and Raymond Keane was always telling me, put together a show reel. Put it, I'll help you. Put it into yeah. RT. They're always looking for people like that. So, so I didn't. And I just fluted along for a long time. But it would, But to be fair, it was because Barabbas, I, I did The White-Headed Boy. Right. With Miriam Duffy and myself and Miriam were the stage managers on the first production of The White-Headed Boy, which we did for, I think, 96 or 97, we did for Theatre Festival. And then basically toured the world for three and a half years with but that that's, show. Like, people still talk about mm. it in hushed tones. Yeah. That, I mean, occasionally these shows come along yeah. and kind of from nowhere just blow everybody yeah. away. What was it like to be on a show like that? It was bonkers. Okay. <laughs> it was bonkers. But I had done a couple of little things with Barabbas before that. I had done, actually, I had done the, the filming of the T.G. Catter. Remember the opening yes. night of T.G. Catter? Yes. Barabbas shot a series of films um, about clowns at home and stuff. So I had done that. I think, I, I think I'm right in saying I did that before. I did, yeah. That was before Whitehead Boy. And a couple of other things. So I kind of understood the clown logic. Not that Whitehead Boy was very clown, but still. But it was... So the premise of it was it was the Lennox Robinson play. And the three guys, um, Raymond Keane, Veronica Cobra and Michael Murphy, played all of the characters except one, which was played by Louis Lovett, which was the Whitehead Boy. And uh, and we had this mad set designed by Sean Hill. And, and it was... It, everything was in black and white. And everything that Louis touched was in colours. So this was the conceit. That anything that was involved with Louis was in bright technicolor right. and everything that was on the rest of their dreary lives was black and white because he was the golden boy and the mo- everything was for him so the best food and the best of clothes course. and everything else were him so he was this golden apparition in silk pajamas and playing the saxophone because it's louis and everyone else was wearing black and white and was bent down you know typical irish uh, family life farm yeah. life and it was just bent down and they you know eating the duck egg you eat the duck egg in the kitchen while <laughs> The white-headed boy eats this entire table full of food. So so, so we had to do a lot of messing. So all of the props were black and white or right. grey, unless they were Louis, and then they were in colour. And then... Oh, and there was a miniature, actually. So the miniature was of the set, as it would be if it was a proper period piece. Right. But our version was little period furniture, uh, doll's house furniture, yeah. photocopied and blown up huge and right. pasted onto these blocks. So there was a chair, was was a thing with a back, but it was just a block. And then the black and white photocopy was pasted on it. And things in that show that still, I mean, apart from the fact that it was brilliant and the guys were brilliant, there were a couple of things that we worked out in rehearsal. And one of them was, at one point, Louis playing the mother when she's fussing over, um, or what did I say? 
Raymond playing the mother. She's fussing over Louis eating his tea. And she says, oh, you haven't eaten enough. I'll make you toast. And she spears a piece of toast with her toasting fork and goes to the photocopied picture of a fire. And all the way through the speech, she's talking to him. She's waving it around so everyone can see that it's white. And she keeps holding it against this. And then the audience smell toast. Right? Amazing. And they start giggling, some of them. And then at the end of it, she goes, ah, the toast is done and holds it out and it's brown. And she, it was Raymond, but she, he was playing the mother. And it would bring the house down, genuinely. And the piece was full of things like that, just really clever things. Yeah. And, and it was something that we racked our brains over in rehearsal because they knew they wanted to do it, but we didn't know how. And eventually, I think, I, I know I said it, but I'd say other people said it as well. And I'm not going to claim it was my idea. If we just have one side of the toast, or, um, toasted. Yeah. And Raymond, being Raymond and being incredibly dexterous with objects, he never showed the toasted yes. side to the audience until the very end. But because he's waving it around the entire time through this, you would swear you had seen both sides. Right. But you never did. And I'm backstage, meanwhile, with the toaster so that they can smell it. So the connection between... Yeah. The sight gag at the end and the, and the toast, they thought it was brilliant, but we had people coming up asking us how it was done and people said that it's lasers. It's, you know, there was all these kind of crazy ideas as to how we were doing that. But That's no incredible. one ever thought it's... I love it. It's uh, just puppetry. It's Raymond Keane being genius. Um, speaking of shows that catch on to a moment and explode and go all around the world, mm-hmm. you have a little bit of Riverdance experience too, <laughs> don't you? Yes. Well, yeah, because I, I did... So I did that big tour with with Mike with Whitehead Boy, and then we did a couple of other shows, and I worked a good I worked a little bit with other shows like I did a little bit of work with Calypso and a little bit of work with Rough Magic and whatever, and then a certain point when I was because what happens to you if you're working in props because I was in ASM basically I was a stage right. manager and I was the stage manager who was good with props, and you become the oldest ASM in the world and you are expected to survive on the trainee wages that they give the people that are just starting. Sure. So. So you do become like a bitter 30-something <laughs> ASM going, am I... Because you don't want to progress up because you're interested in the plans. You're doing the thing you want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's nowhere to go and why should they pay you anymore because they, you know, accept it. Anyway, so so at that point in my life, and um, and I was in a long-term relationship that was coming to a lateral end as well, Brendan Gavin rang me. I remember him ringing me at a very heated moment in an argument and he literally rang me in the middle of it and he said... Emerts, Brendan here. I'm giving you your annual opportunity to turn down Riverdance. <laughs> because they knew that I had an American passport and it was a really easy fit oh, for them. Of course, yes. Yeah. And so I said, Riverdance, right, when do you want me? Great. And I went out. But only for nine weeks was my plan because somebody needed to come home. And they just, it was nine weeks to the end of the, the leg, as they call okay. it. Okay. And I thought, I'll do that. And that just gets me out of here and gives me some breathing space and time to think and whatever. And I ended up out there for three years, but more or less, wow. gaps in between. And that was fun. That's that was um, it, it, it saw parts of America that you'd never see. Like I still see places like oh my gosh, I was there, I was there. And it's so you know because it's touring. Yeah. But in those days when I was touring with the, with Riverdance, we were never anywhere for less than a week. A week was our minimum. Now it's now they do half weeks. Yeah, sure. But at that point they didn't. And uh, I mean we were some places. We were in Boston for two weeks, and we were in somewhere I think Chicago for an entire month. Really? Yeah. Yeah, back in the day. And, and, <laughs> and that now, was brilliant. Okay, so for all the living out of a suitcase and whatever else, mm. is it wonderfully glamorous to be on the road with the hit show like that? Or, you know, as you end up kind of month after month living out of a suitcase and the same faces all around, does it get a little bit trying at times? Or is there enough glamour there to up and down? <laughs> um, a little of both, maybe? A little of both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, Riverdance is a conundrum because, you know, it's still going. It's, yeah. it's quite phenomenal. And... Um, 
like literally we're advanced phenomenon and it bought so many people houses that were never going to get houses otherwise i wasn't one of them unfortunately <laughs> but um yeah it's, it's it was it was a brilliant experience but it was it's just a strange thing it, i mean the majority of the cast are irish dancers mm-hmm. and they are a lot of them i mean when i was there now they're all gone now because the, the lifespan of an irish dancer is quite short but they they had come out of you know they went to feshes and they were yeah. there were those kids who stuck with it and they were winning competitions and they were winning worlds and whatever and then they got to a certain point and there's if they're going to stay in it they have to become teachers there's nothing yes. else until Riverdance and now now there's all these other careers out of it now yeah. a lot of them still they go on to Riverdance they make some money and then they set up their schools it's right. become a whole little side cottage industry and in, in there are people that I was on tour with Riverdance who have set up Irish dancing schools in Munich and Russia and they've gone all over the world really? yeah with their seed money from Riverdance having spent like seven eight years yeah touring but um yeah there's lots of stories I could tell you about <laughs> but it was great I mean I, Riverdance Primarily to me, I was there on 9-11, so that was my... I went out in, in April of 2001, and I came back. We were only back a week when September happened, September 11th happened. And uh, it was kind of crazy. I remember that morning was just crazy, and people... I could hear some of the younger members of the company, because they tend to corral you on the same floor of hotels. <laughs> it makes so much noise. Damn invitation. God, um, yeah, it never really worked, but they did try. But I could hear, I remember hearing um, one of the youngest members of the company who hadn't been out very long, like screaming. She was hysterical. She was trying to wake people up, going, oh my God, oh my God. Pandemonium. Right. And people in Ireland, because everybody in Ireland was kind of quite blasé about it. And I actually thought, my mother would be really worried about me. And then she goes, ah, I knew you were grand. <laughs> right. All right. But even though I had flown from, I thought she would, because I had flown from Pennsylvania and the, and the third flight had taken off from Pennsylvania. Yeah. I thought maybe she'll think it's us, but it wasn't. Um, she was like, no, you're fine. I knew you'd be fine. <laughs> but, but there, being there, it felt like the end of the world. Yeah. That day, that morning felt like the end of the world and it was terrifying. And I can't get that across to people who were here because, okay, it was, it was, everyone was horror struck here and was looking at the TV and everything, but being there. Yeah. Well, for us, it's, it's an abstract thing as opposed to... It was, we were in Minneapolis and I was in the Doubletree in Minneapolis. I'll never forget it because I was, I was in a corner room and my corner, the opposite corner, was the local TV station, the news station. Okay. And I looked out and saw... Because, you know, there are those people who broadcast out the window and there are people outside waving. Yes. So there was a group of about 25 people. I woke up in time to see the second tower fall I think the first one was gone yeah when I yeah. turned on the TV because we were an hour behind and um, I was looking at it going I was trying, still trying to process that picture and then the second one fell so I didn't see the, the whole thing from its entirety but there was about 25 people 30 people standing outside watching and as the day progressed it became 50 100 100 people and they were still there in the evening right and they hadn't moved and they were the same people um, wow. there was a woman I'll never forget her either because we were there for a week and she was a young woman. She was wearing biker gear. And she carried an American flag up and down the length of the street, the main shopping street in Minneapolis, all day, every day. And for the entire week we were there, every time we went up there, she was carrying the flag in front of her like this, up and down the street. Wow. Yeah, it, um, it was mad. And in terms of being involved in shiny show business at that time, <laughs> I mean, is it a wonderful thing to give people a break from the horror that they're going through? Or was it really awkward to try and say to people, hey, forget your worries, come down and watch a bit of well, Michael Flatley dance? Anyway, we didn't have Michael well, by then. No, no. <laughs> but uh, 
it was very weird. It was really weird. I mean, we, so, so Riverdance always, always, always when I was there, traveled on Monday. Mm-hmm. So you do two shows on Saturday, two shows on Sunday. You went back to your hotel usually, um, unless you were the crew who had to go forward and you went on the overnight bus and we would travel on the Monday to the next venue and the get in and fit up was happening Monday, Tuesday and the cast would be in for sound checks and stuff on Tuesday afternoon and then the show would every Tuesday open on Tuesday, every Tuesday like clockwork except 9-11 and the only reason it didn't open on the Tuesday because 9-11, um, the 11th was a, was a Tuesday was because we had, the, the venue that we were in was one of the many um, stonemason venues that, that that's a secret lodge okay. and they had had some secret conferring ceremony thing on the Sunday and they had a blackout on the Monday to get every of their secret stuff out so we weren't okay. allowed near the venue so we had an extra day off that we would not normally have so on Tuesday we were going into the theatre to the fit up and on Wednesday we were opening so on 9-11 which was the Tuesday our crew were in the theatre when it happened I mean Riverdance had just finished on Broadway so there was an awful lot of people who had a huge connections with New York of course. and we had a couple of cast members who were from New York and one of them Aaron Tolson he was one of the tappers his mother had worked in uh, South Tower I think yeah. and she started work every morning at half eight and okay. she was in there as far as he was concerned but he, yeah. could, he couldn't get her nobody could get anyone yeah. it was crazy the phones and um, and she had been late that morning for the first geez, she said my first morning in 20 years she was late and she wasn't there wow and but he didn't know that it was it took a couple of days so there was people you know the americans had one reaction there was lots of people the connections to broadway lots of our crew had connections to people you know the union houses on broadway yeah. and they they were trying to find out who was okay and who wasn't and who was affected and um i remember kath nealon in particular who remember you do you remember kath Catherine sure. nealon yeah she's des's yes of course Des, yeah she was um stage manager on it, it was it was uh, production stage manager she was calling it and um, her then boyfriend, now husband, Chris, was a New Jersey man, but he had been living in New York for years. And they knew people who had been working this sort of summer stage yeah. that's right under the towers. And they couldn't get hold of anyone. And um, by the time they got back to their apartment, which wasn't until Christmas, their apartment and everything in it was covered in the white dust because it had come in through the air conditioning system. Wow. The white dust everyone talks about the white dust because everyone knows what the white dust yeah, was composed yeah. of yeah. so so yeah this is taking a weird turn but yes um on the wednesday we were all very shaken and everybody was going surely we're not doing this show yeah and apparently we got so many um that the, dublin were saying whatever you whatever you think yourselves because yeah, dublin weren't they just went whatever you want to do yeah and um but the theater had gotten so many phone calls on that day and on the following day saying, please tell us Riverdance isn't cancelling. I've been waiting two years to see yeah. this show. Please tell us Riverdance isn't cancelling. And so we went on. And we it was very strange because we decided that we would, um, the company decided that they would do a minute silence at the beginning of the show. Yeah. And everybody everybody was rattled and shaky. It was a very strange time. And um, the lead singer at the time, we all, when the, at the at top of Riverdance, the show, there's a, there's a scrim that, that's in that has the logo on it, and um, basically they pull the scrim out before the show with the house mm-hmm. lights still up. And as soon as people saw the scrim moving, they started cheering. But it was all of us on stage, including the crew and the stage managers and everybody. Right. So they started cheering, and then they kind of it eventually sort of this isn't the start of Riverdance. They started dying yeah. down a little bit. So he stepped forward and he with this big like old frog in his throat, he tried to make a little speech that he'd written where he said. 
because of what has happened and whatever we'd like to do a minute silence. And uh, so everybody goes silent. And it was just, it's a huge venue. It's about three and a half seater venue, I think. And um, it was silent for about 30 seconds. And then I swear, I swear this is true. People started going, USA, USA. And we all, like all of us Irish, just heads, because we were all bowed our heads and yeah. our heads went up. And I just remember staring at them going, oh my God, I can't believe this is crazy. USA. And stomping on the floor and going, whoop, 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 whoop. Like wow. they do at football matches. Yeah. So we just went, okay, that's enough. Let's everybody get off the stage and we'll start the show. And we never, and we went on all that week and we never, we never, there was, there was never a small house because of 9-11. There was never any impact on the show. And there were no flights in the air. That was one of the weird things in the aftermath for, for at least three weeks. There was yeah. no commercial flights in the air, but Rivernauts flew. Wow. We flew and we weren't in commercial air flight. At that point we were, there were chartered planes yeah. that took us, but we flew. So we, we went onto buses, onto the tarmac, all of our suitcases loaded onto the bus, took off, landed, no security, no anything, which is quite astonishing. But it was a, it was a charter plane, it was a private plane, so there was no, even in the aftermath of 9-11. Unbelievable. Mm. Talk to me then about props. the Abbey. Like actual props? Actual props, <laughs> and actual props at the Abbey. Um, let's, yeah. let's play the hits. Okay. Um, as you look on your time at the Abbey, what are you most proud of? What gets you excited now today, or what do you look back on and go, we nailed that, even if it's something small? Wow, we tend to nail a lot of things. I, I'm most proud of working in the Abbey, quite frankly, which sounds like such an early thing to say, but Not it at is. All. Listen, you're talking to your brother over here. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean, I think everybody who works in the Abbey has a bit of a work in the Abbey. Um, I, so when I came back off Riverdance, I, I did a bit of a freelancing, but I had decided I wasn't going to do any more stage management. I was just going to do props full time. And I got a job during the centenary year when all the extra work was going on in the Abbey in uh, 2004. And it sort of led to uh, what became a permanent position afterwards. It was freelance for a while and then it became permanent. But um, I think in the, in the, in, at the very beginning, I still felt like I was chancing my arm because I was a stage manager pretending to be a prop maker okay. as far as I was concerned I had no like formal training in yeah. prop making or prop sourcing so for a long time I thought I'm winging this and someone is going to turn around someday and go you should not be here you should never have gotten this job <laughs> get out right so um but even at that there were there were small things there was things like um there's still sometimes things that you make and people go wow you know like that the minute we walked in here you saw that and went for those of you at home <laughs> it looks like a hybrid between a large cat an owl and a robin red breast on steroids is that an accurate yes, reflection that's, that's, of yeah I mean it's quite beautiful that's cat bird yeah that's um, part Ewok maybe also <laughs> yeah she's um, it's for a piece called Josephine K and the Algorithms and it was it was festival last year in the Peacock Stacey Gregg piece yeah and so it was about um it was a take on um, Kafka, the trial. So it was about um, a woman who, who is arrested one morning and, and is told she's to prepare for trial and she's on trial and she doesn't know why. And it turns out it's because of social media use and she has incriminated herself and they have photographs to prove it. That, you know, everything that yes. you would be kind of slightly afraid of with your social media use came out in this piece. It was really quite intense. But um, Carl Kennedy was playing kind of multiple characters. He was also, bus- he was doing the, his own soundscape live. And at the end, his character was, he was kind of Mr. Computer. He was Mr. Universe, if, right. you, if you watch Firefly. Um, 
and he so he was he was the, he was the internet kind of and he was the algorithms so he had this line where he said um hey i know you like cats and i know you like birds so here i made you this so this <laughs> is, is basically a 3d internet meme meme i can never say that word or, yeah you know because there, there is if you if you google catbird it comes up it's a half robin half cat I shall be spending my time Googling that from now on. <laughs> but then, you know, you kind of go, okay, I have to make an impossible thing. I have to mm. make a 3D thing that's only possible through Photoshop. And yeah. how do you do that? And you have to sort of, you have to break it down and you have to build it back up. And then you go, okay, I can't make it look like that picture, but I can make it look like something. I can yes. make my, my interpretation of it. And and I was really under pressure at the time. We had a big show with Ulysses opening upstairs and I was really under pressure. And I just kept putting them off. <laughs> the peacock sorry everyone who's ever worked in the peacock I just kept saying I can't get to that but I will Yeah. so I had nothing to show them I had no progress to show them or anything and I just turned up with it finished one day and they always went ah here and it, it actually it worked really well but what's really funny about it is as somebody said about her um, she has this really woebegone expression and I don't know whether it's <laughs> whether it's my state of mind at the time that came through <laughs> but as I was trying to make it it just has this kind of look of horror in its eyes and as somebody said somebody in a uh, online I don't know whether it was in a, somebody commenting on Facebook or somebody in an actual um, review said it's as though it's saying what even am I what even am I I'd, I'd go with that <laughs> but so, so yeah so every so often you get a thing like that you get to make an impossible thing like um the remains of Maisie Duggan where I made a dead kitten that has to be they have to try and resuscitate the kitten so its stomach has to inflate I remember it well um, yeah I and, and then smaller things like uh, for Christ Deliver Us it's my favourite prop um, Wayne Jordan came to me and said I really want her to blow a Jimmy Joe on stage now that's a real Dublin expression or I'd never heard of a Jimmy Joe so I actually didn't know what he was asking me okay. I, want, I want her to blow a Jimmy Joe on stage and I said Excuse me, and it turns out that that's a dandelion clock right. in, in Wayne world, Wayne's world. But um, I went okay, so I had to go and try and figure that out and figure out how I would do it, and um, and I worked it out. It's about monofilament and um, marabou feather and stuff. So I remember showing him sort of a half halfway through the process, saying, "This is what I'm going to do, and this is what it's going to do." And we go, "I'm not convinced," and it's he just couldn't see what it was going to be he wasn't convinced by the idea and I and I had just Sean McArdle who's an American prop maker had just been here with um, with Sam Shepard the late Sam Shepard's yes. shows and he'd made this incredible fan that gets shot with the sh- shotgun Stephen Ray's character shoots it with a shotgun and he was Sean's like this incredible mixture of the two guys out of Mythbusters he's he is, <laughs> he is if you can imagine the two of them mashed together that's Sean okay and he's really enthusiastic and he comes up with things so he had just been here and he had said to me, I need you to join this Google prop group. It's everyone's American, but <laughs> you qualify by birth. Oh, yes, so, technically. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I kind of went, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I emailed him when this problem came up and I said, OK, so here's one for your prop people. How would they do this? And Jim Guy, who is the, um, the prop master in Milwaukee rep, he said, we had that a while ago. And one of our artisans, because they call them people who make artisans in America, one of our artisans came up with this elegant solution and he described exactly what I had done. Right. And I thought, this validation, because otherwise I would have gone, oh God, it doesn't work, I'm stupid. Yeah. And thrown them in. So I just kept going with it and it worked, of course. And yeah. it, and it's, of course, she says, <laughs> but it did. And it worked really well. And, and it's still one of my favourite props I've ever made because it was such a, 
it's just it was this tiny moment on stage but it was a moment it was yeah. it had its own moment that that prop and sometimes props can do that they can you can i mean every play ever written for to the prop people is the one with like yes <laughs> the one with the head or the one with the dead swan yeah. or the one with the gouging of the eyes or the one with, you know yeah. that's we see that those terms so we see it in terms of the objects having gone back and done the ma now do you yeah. feel a little bit less like you might get fired out anytime soon? <laughs> a little bit less like you might be chancing the arm? Or at this stage, is it just about clocking up the hours as well at this stage that um, I presume you're a bit more confident in it at this stage? Yeah, yeah I am, yeah. I mean, like, yes. I mean, the Google group actually really helps the pop because I have no peers in this country. It sounds really weird. Yeah. But there is no professional pop people at this kind of level. Yeah. Full-time, permanent pop people. Yeah. Permanent, touch wood. Um, <laughs> and... And when we and they get to, they they can just Google one another and say has anyone ever done this play or has anyone ever done this problem mm. so at the moment we're doing the Unmanageable Sisters which is a version of a Michael Tremblay play it's a Canadian play and and it's something that they do very very often called Les Belles Sœurs so they so it's it's well known yeah um, it's one of the canon say in, in the equivalent of I don't know Playboy or something yeah. so everyone does it eventually and so I was able to go onto them and say how do you deal with the problem of a million green shield stamps because that's what's in the play. Yes. So the women, one of them wins a million green shield stamps and they have to stick them into the books all the way through the play. All of the business and all of the the text and the dialogue and the moments are all around how many books they've filled by then and because they keep stealing them then they, they all get jealous that she, one of them has won them all and they say, I don't know, when she's not looking. So they keep wow. stealing them. So they have to fill the books and have them filled and then steal them. And So I was able to get onto these guys and ask and... Um, and got several different ideas and so we've kind of gone with a version of two different ideas at the moment that's what we're looking at so just before i met you i had said okay ladies here's 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 the thing about green shield stamps <laughs> so so i feel yeah i would i mean it sounds a bit mad and i was a bit nervous going into them they're phenomenal ladies have you seen our cast list from i have Angela's? seen your cast list it's quite something i thought oh boy so i had to go in and sound like i knew everything there was to know about green shield stamps now i have because i am so nerdy about it i had done tons of research and i did know what i was talking about but i i don't think i would have felt quite as confident before i did the ma as really? i did after the yeah it gave me a lot of gave me a lot of more formal language around things sure because because the MA that I did was um, material culture design history MA, and I had never done any design history. I mean, I never did art. I did art yeah. for the leaving. Yeah. That's it. You know, everything else is self-taught. Right. And I learned it on Panto, and I learned it working for Brabus, and then I just learned and I picked it up. And by reading antiques books and all that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, no, I, addressing that group of fifteen formidable women, um, to tell them that it was okay. I knew all that there was to know about green shield stamps, and it was covered. It's, it's fantastic. And like, I just had a moment because they all went, that's brilliant. It's <laughs> like, <I> so. <laughs> well, from 15 formidable women to one very formidable woman. Um, that's fantastic. I could chat to you all day long. <laughs> I mean, we could do more cat birds. We could do everything. Um, I'm so delighted to have had this chat. I'm, it's one of the most fascinating ones we've done. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. You're very welcome. 
So there you have it, the brilliant Emer Murphy, a great chat with a great woman. And apart from all her incredible work at the Abbey, she does a huge amount to help and support the independent theatre sector as well. And I remember her sorting me out with vintage suitcases for a piece I was working on with Ian Toner when he was still just a student at the Gaiety. And something I'll always be grateful to Emer for was all the advice she gave me when we were making the games people play. Now, in the show, I spend the first hour building this 24-in-1 foosball stroke pool table thing and, spoiler alert, I spend the last five minutes kicking it apart and destroying it. Now, these things cost about 250 quid a piece, so clearly the budget didn't stretch to covering nearly 50 tables between the original run and the tour, but Emer came up with this ingenious fix that gave the full smashing effect every single night, but didn't break the bank. It's something I'll never forget her for, and I'm delighted for her to share her story with you all on the podcast. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, they have class, which I saw for the second time when it opened last night. It is back bigger and badder than ever. It is fantastic, and it is well worth checking out. Also, of course, I think there are a few final tickets remaining for the 24-hour play, plays, I should say, Uh, in support of DYT. Do please go and put your hand in your pocket to support that, if at all you can. At the Gate Theatre, they have the final few performances of The Red Shoes, and that will be followed by Look Back in Anger, with an absolutely stellar cast that will definitely be worth checking out. At the Gaiety Theatre, they have Druid's production of Sive, and I'll bet the opening night of that this week. At the Borgosh, they have Spamalot, for all you Monty Python fans out there. Um, Theatre Upstairs has Murder of Crows coming back, but not to Theatre Upstairs. It's coming to Project. Uh, it's also going to Garter Lane in Waterford and The Lyric in Belfast. Do check that out on its travels if you can. Um, the new theatre has Home and Walkinstown is at Smock Alley, written by and starring Rise Audio Drama alum Keith James Walker and also starring Kieran Roach. Now, I caught the opening night on Wednesday and I laughed my ass off. If you want a nice night out, let your hair down, get yourself in to see Walkinstown. It is spectacular. Um, the Viking Theatre in Clontarf has Dirt Birds Live and that'll be followed by From Under the Bed which I'm very much looking forward to catching myself um, Take Off Your Cornflakes one of the Shona Bag shows from 2017 our stable mates is at the Dolman Theatre for all you Southsiders um, and Bewley's has All Honey and that'll be followed by Looking Deadly um, at Project they are continuing with if we, if we Got Some More Cocaine I Could Show You How I Love You starring the brilliant Alan Mahan now, that is selling like crazy, so if you want to go along, do please book your tickets now, or they will be gone, and that'll be the end of it. Um, and of course, they also have the world premiere of Marco Rowe's new play, The Approach, from the all-conquering Landmark Productions, which I'll also be going to see, and I really can't wait to catch that. As we head south to the Everyman in Cork, they have How It Is, and The Love Hungry Farmer is also coming up, and heading out west to Galway, Hope and Fury, and also Wide Eyes, which is a festival for children is happening there and at the lime tree in limerick they have someone who'll watch over me coming soon and then as we head north to the lyric in belfast they have that scottish play and the threepenny opera coming up Uh, and also coming soon is after the end by the brilliant dennis kelly that is one absolutely not to be missed it'll also be coming down to the new theater for a couple of weeks in dublin Uh, it is a cracking production of a brilliant play do not miss it so that's us that is episode 12 would you believe in the books we will of course be back next Next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, 
This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Thank you.